Well, let me invite you to take your copy of the Scriptures and go to the book of John, please. John chapter 20. I really appreciate all the work that uh, Eric put into the, getting that Easter choir ready. And um, he and Haley working hard here. In a couple weeks, we're going to have a farewell uh, for them as they're transitioning. So be watching for updates about that. Thomas was feeling hopeless. He believed in Christ. In fact, we know from an earlier account in the book of John in chapter 11 that he was willing to die with Christ. He believed in Christ, but things were not turning out the way he thought they would. Thomas thought that he was going to see Christ exalted, and then when he thought that Christ was going to die, he kind of resigned to that. Now that Jesus was dead, he, we get the sense that he thought it was all over, or he was at least wondering. Then the other disciples, they had an opportunity to see Jesus. Thomas was not in that meeting, and um, we don't know if he was not there because he was discouraged and didn't want to be with the other disciples, or he just wasn't there. But he wasn't there, but the other disciples were able to see the risen Savior, and Thomas did not. They began, the other disciples began to tell Thomas that Jesus had arisen from the dead and they were excited about this, as you can imagine. And Thomas would not believe. And for a week, Thomas was hearing the other disciples say, Jesus is alive. And Thomas was saying, I will not believe it unless I see it myself. Thomas remained skeptical. Was he, was he worried that the other disciples were just trying to make him feel better? Was, were, were, uh, w- 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 was he thinking that maybe possibly they were uh, having wishful thinking here? Did he, was he afraid of being gullible? We don't know. We don't know. But all we do know is that Thomas wanted irrefutable and indisputable proof of the resurrection. So, I'm going to read John 20, starting verse 24. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. That was the first coming a week earlier. Verse 25. So, the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. and Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Jesus answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet, and have yet believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which were not written in this book. But these, 
are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Thomas understood that the resurrection was a very big deal. He understood that if Christ were dead, then he had no hope. He understood the fact that if Christ really did rise from the dead, then there was eternal hope that he could have. And so when the disciples, the other disciples were telling him that they had seen Jesus, it was almost like it was too good to be true. It was almost like he didn't want to get sucked into that, or he was guarding himself against another letdown. And so he said, he said, unless I see Jesus, and then he takes it a step further, he says, unless I take my hands and I place them in the wounds of the Savior, I will never believe. Leanne Morris says this about this account in this gospel here. I put it on the screen for you. It says this, this incident peculiar to this gospel is of the utmost importance for an understanding of the way the first Christians came to know that the resurrection had indeed taken place. Thomas is helpful to us in understanding the truthfulness and the historicity of the resurrection. And so as we go through this text today, we're going to be talking about the idea of belief and unbelief. We're going to talk about the idea of what the resurrection means to that. And so as we work through this text this morning in just a few minutes, I just want us to be asking the question, do I believe in the resurrection? Point number one as we begin in this this study. First point, unbelief is natural. Unbelief is natural. Now that may sound odd coming from a pastor to say, but look at verse 24 again. He says, They said that he had seen the Lord, and he says, unless I see the marks in the hands, I will never believe. Now, the way that this is constructed is it's actually uh, a use of a double negative, which means it's a very emphatic uh, negative statement. He's saying that there's no way, there's no chance that I will ever believe that this is true Unless I can not only physically see it, but I want to touch it as well. He was very adamant about this. And I say that unbelief is natural because I think all of us struggle with unbelief. And I think in some ways that we're a bit unfair to Thomas. He's been known throughout history as Doubting Thomas. That's how we remember him. We don't remember him as the one who was willing to go die with Christ. And we don't remember him the one who said, My Lord, my God here. We remember him as Doubting Thomas. I think it's a little unfair. I mean, the other disciples, they uh, had their own weaknesses and things. I mean, we don't refer to Peter as impetuous, denying, lying, scared of what a teenage girl thinks of me, Peter. No, he's called St. Peter. In fact, I even hear there's a basilica named after him. So we're, I think we're a little bit unfair to Thomas sometimes. All the disciples were scared. Look at in chapter 20, verse 19. It says, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked, this is the first account here, that where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. They were scared of what it meant to be associated with Jesus. And at that moment, they were not thinking of Jesus as a conquering, victorious hero. 
And remember that they did not initially believe Mary Magdalene's report of the resurrection. Mark 16, 11, put it on the screen, says this. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. And so even the original disciples, they, the, the, the other disciples, when they heard Mary Magdalene's report of Jesus' resurrection, they were slow to believe this as well. And the other disciples, they needed signs to prove that the resurrection was really true. Luke's account, Luke chapter 24, verse 38 to 43, says this. Again, it's on the screen. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your heart? This is Jesus talking to them. He says, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they were still disbelieving for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you here anything to eat? And so they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before him. Now, the reason why Jesus did that is because he was showing them that if he was just an aberration or if he was just a spirit, he would not need to eat or he could not eat. And so what he was saying, hey, look, okay, you're still not believing. You see me standing here. You see this here. And they were just so incredulous of what had just happened and that the, 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 even just the idea that Jesus might be risen, that they were afraid to even just wholeheartedly believe this. They said, okay, fine, give me a piece of bread give me a, or, or give me a fish here. And so he, he takes a... a the piece of the fish there, and he eats it before them to show them, I'm really risen. You see my flesh. You see my bones. Spirits don't have that, he was saying. So the point is that the other disciples needed signs as well. And no doubt, had Thomas been in the first meeting that is recorded in chapter 20, verse 19, I think he would have believed. And so I I, I want us to be a little bit cautious about, about being down on Thomas. Yeah, he doubted. He was afraid. Yeah, he had some reservations. But the fact of the matter is, unbelief is natural. Our default mode, every person in this room, our default mode is to not believe God. We are prone to doubt. I am prone to doubt. You are prone to doubt. And so what the first idea is, we go through this text, I just want you to see, I want all of us to understand that unbelief is natural. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says this. It says, For the natural man, or the natural person, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. And so we see that in our natural state, we are unbelievers. Now, we may have a proclivity because of our uh, proclivity to belief because of the environment that we grew up in. I grew up in a Christian home, and so I had, I had a, a better chance, if you will, at believing in Christ than someone who did not grow up in a Christian home. I recognize that. But I recognize also in the heart of every man is someone who struggles with unbelief. And what causes doubt? Maybe fear maybe anxiety, maybe not wanting to be gullible, maybe concerned about what other people may think about us. There's a whole host of reasons which causes doubt, but that doesn't really matter. The point I'm trying to make here is that there is doubt in all of our hearts. Now, as we make this applicable, we could go a couple ways. First of all, maybe you're here today and you, you believe in God. And you say, well, Jeremy, I understand what you're saying, but, but, but I, I, I believe in God. 
I, I, I don't doubt God. I, I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. I mean, this is why I'm here today. I'm here to, to, to celebrate that fact. So maybe, Jeremy, just, you know, in, 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 in your mind, and you're always very gracious in your mind when you're talking to me, uh, in your mind you're saying, you know, just, just, okay, time to move on to the next point. Okay, got this one done. What I say to that is I say, don't give yourself a pass too soon. And don't pat yourself on the back quite yet. Because every time we violate God's standard, every time we, law, we, we, we violate God's law and we sin, why do we do that? It's because we doubt God. When we're tempted to get angry at somebody and respond in a wrong way, why do we do that? Well, it's because we're doubting whether or not what God said the appropriate response is true. When we're tempted to look at pornography... Why do we do that? We're, we're, we're doubting that God said that isn't good for you. When we're, we're, when we're tempted to, to cheat on taxes and things like that or not report income or whatever, we're doubting what God really has said. And we could go on and on and on with all the different applications of how we could, we could apply this. But the fact of the matter is, it started in the beginning and started in the garden. When Eve listened to the voice of the serpent and said, when the serpent said, did God really say? How many times in our course of our life do we listen to that? Well, does God really mean that I shouldn't do this? Or does God really mean that I should do that? Unbelief is natural, and we need to fight against that. We're going we're to see that in just a second here. But I want us to understand that if you're here and you're a believer in Christ and you accept Christ and everything, I want us to just pause for a second, though, and before, before saying, yeah, we got this, and moving on, I want us to understand that doubts do plague us. And we need to cry out to God to give us faith, to give us more faith. Remember, remember the, the, the man, um, I'm going to refer to this later on in the sermon, but remember the man who his, his son needed to be healed, his child needed to be healed, and so he goes to Jesus, and the child wasn't there. And he says, Jesus, please heal. Please heal my child. And, and, and Jesus said, if you believe, I will. Remember his response? He, he, he said, I believe. But he didn't stop there. He said something else right after. I love it. He said, help my unbelief, right? right? You, know, you, you see this, conf- this conflict in his soul. He said, yes, I believe in you. But then he realized he was a sinful man and that he had doubts too. And he says, but help my unbelief. He wanted to believe in God, and this is where we all need to be. We need to first of all understand that unbelief is natural, but we should not, we should not be satisfied there. And so the first application there is for those who are believers that we should understand that doubt is still something that we need to war against. And maybe there's people here today that you've never asked Christ to save you from your sins. You don't have that relationship with Christ that we're talking about here. And maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, I, I don't know if it's true. I mean, I love the tradition of it, and, and I appreciate the sincerity of, of, of you and other Christians that I know, but I just don't know if it's true or not. I just say, I understand. Doubt is part of being human. And then 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, the natural person, the person who just by himself, we do not naturally accept the things of God because we need help in that. We, just like the man who needed help believing that Jesus could raise his, his child or heal his child, we need help to believe. And that leads us to our second point. 
So the first point was unbelief is natural. The second point is that belief requires a supernatural gift. Belief requires a supernatural gift. Now, in this context here with with Thomas, remember Thomas here, he was saying, unless I see this, unless I touch this, I will not believe. He was asking for a supernatural gift. He was asking to see the risen Savior. He was asking to to see Jesus come again. Because remember, for a week now, a week, his friends have been kept telling him, and that's the way it's written in the original, is that they just kept telling him. They kept telling him, he's risen. He's risen. We saw him. And he kept saying, no, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. And finally, in an exasperated sense, he said, look, unless I see him, unless I can touch him, I won't believe. So you're wasting your breath on me. Maybe there's people here today that, that you've had sincere Christians try to, to, to give you the, the, the message of salvation and, and what God's Word has to say, and it just doesn't make sense to you. And, you. and so finally it's like, look, I need to see something. You know, God understands our weaknesses. You ever wonder why Jesus rose from the grave and then showed himself to so many people? I mean, he could have just risen from the dead and just gone up to God, and he would accomplish the same thing, right? He would have beaten death and sin. But he showed himself to all these people. We just read earlier in Luke's account, Luke 24, how he, in a very gracious way, said, okay, give me a piece of fish. I mean, I would have loved to have been there. Can you imagine this, this scene? And they're, 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 they're probably not saying much. For once, Peter's not talking. And, and so you have, you have all of this, the, the scene unfolding, and it says for disbelief, for joy. It was like they were just going, I want to believe, but I don't believe what I'm seeing here. And it's almost this guardedness here. And, and then this, this idea in Jesus again, guys, I'm right here. This is me. Look, flesh and bones. Spirits don't have this. And then... They're still not saying anything, and they're still just amazed. He's like, okay, give me fish. He starts eating. I would have loved to have been there. Why was Jesus doing that? He was showing them and proving to them that he had really risen because he understood that they understood that their eternal state depended on whether or not he did rise from the dead. And God, in his mercy towards us, gave that supernatural gift. Now, I think instead of us always being down on Thomas, I think that part of Thomas's skepticism helped us have something to look back on and see the risen Savior. And so, but we need to understand that even believing in God takes God to help us believe. And so if you're here today and you're struggling with this idea of belief, I'm praying that God helps you believe. And for those of us who have said that we believed in God, I am praying that we continue to believe because we need God's help there as well. Constant attempts at persuasion were not enough for Thomas. He says he would never believe. Now, Jesus had appeared to the other disciples several times. He showed them the wounds like we talked about. And then Jesus gently tells Thomas here. Now, I want you to look in verse 27. He says, Jesus said to Thomas, he said, put your finger here, see my hands, and put your hand and place it on my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. I think the, the, the best way to capture that thought is him to say, <clears throat> do not become an unbeliever, Thomas, but become a believer. He, he understood that Thomas was on the road to doubt and despair, and he says, don't become an unbeliever, Thomas. Believe in me. 
believe in me. It was a gentle way that Jesus was dealing with Thomas. And Jesus and God does, they do deal gently with us and provide so many proofs for us. And so Romans 1 teaches us that when we look at creation, we see the order there. We see the fact that those things happen. And that, that, it, it, that, wasn't, that wasn't a mistake. It was, it was by God's design. When we look at the... In, in, uh, the, uh, the I, in, in, I can't say this word. I'm sorry. The... The details. There's a synonym. <laughs> okay, when you're public speaking, you can't think of a word. You got to think of a different one quick. Okay, <laughs> the the, uh, the the details of each of God's creation in the in the in the little tiny things and in the stars and all these things. Does that did that just happen though? No. It, it shows a, a hand of a designing God in a, an intelligent design. All these things, God has shown. Proofs of his existence. And then so many times after this, and we, we won't take time to read all the accounts, but there were several times, at least five different times, Jesus appeared to people after his resurrection. And once there was over 500 people present. So it wasn't just a localized thing. It wasn't just that his best friends saw him. It was many people saw him. Hundreds of people saw him. The fact that during that time, the fact that the grave was empty was never in dispute. That was never in dispute. Everyone knew that the grave was empty. And so we see Jesus and God giving us supernatural gifts to help us believe. And we see here that this is what he was doing for Thomas. And let me remind you of what Leon Morris said I'll put the quote back up on the screen. This incident peculiar to this gospel is of utmost importance for an understanding of the way that the first Christians came to know the resurrection had indeed taken place. This event right here was helpful when these first Christ, the first Christians, the one who had not seen or had not had the opportunity to see the risen Christ, they would go back to this account here and they would hear of Thomas and how Thomas, he wasn't, he wasn't just swallowing this whole. He was, he, he was doubtful about it and he was skeptical about it and he was he was crossing his T's and dotting his I's on this. He was making sure that this really was true. And he responded, my Lord and my God. The supernatural gift of these disciples and the men and women to whom he appeared was, a connect, was connected to the resurrection. And that's why this day is so important. By showing them that he had supernaturally risen from the dead, he helped them believe. Now the supernatural gift that God gives us today is also connected to the resurrection. If you have a chance, go ahead and you can turn over to 1 Corinthians 15. I just want to show you this real quickly here. 1 Corinthians 15, just a few pages over to the right. Great text of Scripture. I encourage you to read this text of Scripture. It might be helpful to read it today. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. It says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and our faith is in vain. Drop down to verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. The resurrection is a big deal, but thankfully verse 20 is there. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. 
And so we see in 1 Corinthians 15 this importance of the supernatural gift that God has not given just for the faith of the people that saw him, but it's also given to us and for our faith. It's a supernatural gift so that we can look back and we can see that this indeed is where our hope lies. It's a gift. So our faith that we have in God is a gift. And you say, well, wait a minute here. What about what, or our belief is a gift? You say, what about faith? What about repentance? Yes, that is true that we need to show faith in God, and we do need to repent. But the Bible is clear that even God has a hand in that as well. Ephesians chapter 2, I put it on the screen, and verse 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not your own doing. Okay, now the question comes is, what is it when it says, and this is not your own doing? What is this going back to? Is it going back to the grace that you've been saved, or is it going back to the faith that you've been saved through? Well, the answer to that question is, if you study it and you parse it out linguistically, is you see that it's actually talking about the whole package. The grace that you've been saved through faith, all of that is God's doing. It's a gift of God. And then he says the reason why. It's not a result of our own doing or of our works so that no one could boast. And so it's true that we need to believe in God. It's true that we need to exercise our faith. It's true that we need to consciously do that. But we need to understand that God is behind the scenes. He is orchestrating and he's helping us do that. That is why the person said when he wanted his son healed, he said, he says, I believe, but help my unbelief. He understood that he needed God's help even in that. Well, what about repentance? We need to make sure that we are repenting of our sins. The Bible talks about repentance as turning from our sin. And every person here needs to do that. Every person here needs to repent of, our, uh, of your sins and turn away from that and follow Christ. Well, that sounds like an action you must do. And it is. It is something you must do. But we need to understand that God is always enabling. He is working and helping us do that. A passage I put on the screen for you is 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24 and 25. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Look at this. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of truth. Where does the repentance come from? It comes from God here. And so the point I'm trying to make here is that belief requires a supernatural gift. And so if you're here today and you're struggling with believing this, I get it because unbelief is natural. I get it. Unbelief is something that is very common to all of us. We all need to cry out to God to help us believe. And that's what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you today, if you're struggling with this idea of of believing in the resurrected Savior, Just ask God for that belief. God has made faith and repentance possible. It's true. It's something that we need to act on. But it is God that's working. And we see that in Philippians chapter 2. It's natural to doubt God. But God has given us supernatural gifts to help our unbelief. The resurrection was the supernatural gift to Thomas and to his friends. And the resurrection continues to be the supernatural gift for us today. Thirdly, Belief requires confession. So what does it mean to believe? What does it mean? You say, okay, well, I want to believe, but what does it look like? What what does it look like when I believe? How do I know if God's given me that supernatural gift? How do I know if I really am a believer? Well, look at Thomas' response here in verse 28. When Jesus talks to him and everything, Jesus, or excuse me, Thomas answered him. He says, my Lord and my God. Now, there's a lot of debate, and I was reading a lot on this text here, and people were talking about and debating back and forth of whether or not Thomas actually put his hands in the wounds of Jesus. Honestly, it doesn't matter. I, I, I don't think he did, uh, but it really doesn't matter. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But what it does matter is his response to Jesus. 
That was, this was a, a more, um, it was a more forceful response. This wasn't, this wasn't simply, I mean, you would think that if he was doubting simply whether or not Jesus was alive or dead, if he saw Jesus, he, his response would be, hey, you're alive, or great, you're alive. That would be what he said. But that's not what he said. He didn't even talk about, his response didn't even include the fact that he was alive. He said, my Lord and my God. He knew, he knew that was what hung in the balance here. Is Jesus God or is he not God? And when Thomas saw Jesus risen from the dead, he said, my Lord, my God. So belief requires a confession. He confessed Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10 says this, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And so a critical part of this confession is the acceptance of the resurrection. Did you see that there in Romans 10? It says that you have to believe that God has raised him from the dead and you will be saved. But what does it mean to confess? Well, the, the word is homo legeo, and it comes from two words, which has the idea of same, homo, homosexual, same sex, okay? So homo, same, legeo comes from uh, lagos, or the word, and so same word. And so what it means to confess, it means to say the same word, or to say the same thing as, or to agree with, okay? And so if someone gives a testimony in the court of law, and they say, is this what you saw? Did you see this individual commit this crime? And they say, yes, I saw that. They are confessing. They are saying the same thing as what the prosecution said. And so they are assenting to that. And so here, in this context, we need, in order for us to believe, in order for us to receive the supernatural gift and what God is giving to us on a daily basis, and this is not just for unbelievers, this is for me, this is for you who are believers. Every day, we need to go back to the resurrection, and we need to understand that it is Christ and his rising from the dead that gives us hope. Without this, we are of all men most miserable, Paul said. And so we need to say, we need to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's not, and obviously you can understand from the context, it's not just saying it. It's this idea of believing that Christ is indeed risen from the dead. That, my friend, is what it means to believe in Christ. You cannot be a follower of Christ and doubt his resurrection. It's impossible. You have to accept this event that we're celebrating today in order to be a believer in Christ. And for some of us, we have been in church for so long, and we have heard this message for so long, and we've heard the song sung for so many years, that I fear it just has become routine. And I was praying this morning for my own soul. I want you to know, my friends, I... I pray for my own soul here that I would not just be cold and calloused towards this because eternal life depends on the fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we need to accept that on a daily basis. And when we do, that gives us strength. 
when we think, okay, if, if Christ has conquered death, he's conquered sin, he's conquered all this, then what do we have to be afraid of? Why do we get so tripped up in our sinfulness? Do you see how all of this has effects on our everyday life? And so belief requires a confession there, a confession that Jesus is Lord. This is what Thomas said. He didn't say, hey, you're alive. He said, my God, my Lord. He understood who Jesus was. It's easy to say that we believe in God, but are we submitted to God? He was showing his submission there. True belief is submitting to God and to what the Scriptures say about Jesus and who he is. He is holy and he is God. Thomas got that point, and we see that in his response to Jesus. Finally this morning, belief results in eternal life. Look at verse 29. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which were not written in his book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now when we're interpreting the Scriptures, we always need to do this properly. We always need to understand that the Scriptures for the most part, they, they were not written specifically to us. They were written to specific audiences, these letters, but they were written for us. And so we can learn from it. Now, G, now John's gospel is slightly different. John wasn't writing to a specific group of people necessarily. He was writing it as a testimony to the entire world. So, you know, almost 2,000 years later, when you read this text right there, when he says, these are written so that you may believe He's talking about you. He's talking about me. These were written so that we could believe. And belief results in eternal life. John chapter 3, verse 36 says this. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. And the wrath of God remains on him. Belief results in eternal life. I want you to look at that verse that's on the screen. I want you to see the connection there. There's a connection between obedience and belief. You see, whoever believes has eternal life. Whoever does not obey shall not see life. See the connection of obedience and belief there. A true believer will obey or seek to obey the Savior. And so when we look at this text here, and we, and we can look at Jesus' response to Thomas, and we can say that he was rebuking him, and there's some debate about that as well. It does appear that way, the way it's written. But if it is a rebuke, it's a very soft rebuke. He was just asking the question, have you now believed me because you have seen me? And then he just alludes to the fact that there's going to be so many people that, and you and I are part of this group, that do not or did not have the opportunity to see the risen Christ and yet believe. Jesus said, blessed are they. They are blessed by God because they have belief. And so my, my, my prayer for you this morning, every person here, is that you believe in God. And that you accept this resurrection as proof of Jesus' deity, and you accept this, and that it causes you to submit to Jesus, much like it did Thomas. Thomas wasn't just happy that Jesus was alive. Thomas knew, once he saw that Jesus was alive, submitted completely to him, and bowed before him, and accepted him as God. So it could be that we are here today, and we're just accepting that Jesus rose from the dead. I would say that's not enough. I would say what this day should do, it should cause us to want to obey Christ and submit to him. So whether or not you embrace the reality of the resurrection has eternal consequences. How you view this day can speak for all eternity on your account. And so my prayer is that 
all of us here today accept this and are turned towards God. So the goal today, the goal today was to cause us to appreciate the eternal ramifications of the resurrection. We are weak. We are all naturally doubters. But God has given us supernatural gifts. He's given us the resurrection, the preserved word of God, and faith and repentance necessary to follow him. Are you a Christ follower? Do you embrace the resurrection and its eternal significance? If you are an unbeliever today, if you are an unbeliever, today is the day of salvation. And if you're a believer, I would ask that you just take a minute and ask God to help you appreciate what God has done for you and how that that should translate into your everyday life. When Thomas saw the risen Christ, he responded with worship and adoration. And that should be our response every day. Every day is a day that we should celebrate the risen Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for the opportunity to look at this text and this idea of Thomas and his doubting, but yet how you use that to help us have something that we could, it helps our faith to see Thomas struggle through that and to see the proofs that were offered to him. All of us are naturally unbelievers. All of us, we struggle with this. And forgive us for that and help us to receive the supernatural gifts of faith and belief that you have offered to us. And, and Lord, if there's people here that are struggling with this, Lord, I pray that they would just ask. They would ask you for faith and ask you to help them see Christ and respond to Christ like Thomas did in saying, my Lord and my God. Help us to see Christ in that way as our Lord and our God. And it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen.